Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to talk about lessons from the top, unleashing your roar. My guest today knows all about leaders unleashing their roar to achieve at the highest levels in corporate America. Michael Heider is the Chief Diversity Officer for Corn Ferry. He is an accomplished senior executive, leadership consultant, and thought leader specializing in the development of enterprise leaders and their next generation successors. He is currently serving as the Chief Diversity Officer of Corn Ferry. Prior to this role, he was a senior partner and managing director at Corn Ferry, joining them in 2012 after the acquisition of Global Novations, where he served as president and managing partner. He is one of today's best known experts and the author of several books, the first being The Power of Choice, Embracing Efficacy to Drive Your Career, and The Power of Inclusion. Michael was recognized by Savoy Magazine in 2016 and 2018 as one of the most influential Blacks in corporate America. I am absolutely jazzed to have him on the show today. He has been a phenomenal friend, partner, and mentor over the years, really helping me navigate my career. So let's welcome Michael. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Lakeisha. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I tell you, it's uh, so awesome to be chatting with you today. Thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I tell you, you know, I've just been so blessed. And I shared with the audience earlier that I got a chance to meet you, I think, at a conference a number of years ago and have just been a avid follower. I'm I'm following Michael because you always have such wisdom and insight based on your experience in corporate America. And, you know, most recently uh, we reconnected. Mm -hmm through one of my coaches. And I said, Hey, I've got this, this thought and I'm thinking about doing this. And she said, the first person you got to call is Michael. <laughs> if you recall that. I do. And, uh, and I also recall that you did what you said you were going to do too. I did. I did. And it was because of just your, your insight and really just kind of how you gave me the perspective on thinking about the opportunity. And I just want to say thank you for that. And so I'm just excited to share you with the audience because you know, you have a track record of success, but you also have a phenomenal track record of helping so many executives really unlock their potential and think about how they might navigate their career for success. And so I'm excited to launch right in. But before we do that, why don't we take some time to, to give the audience an opportunity to know a little bit about you? Is that OK? That's fine. Thank you. All right. 
So tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and who were some of your biggest influences growing up? Well, I am from Detroit, Michigan, which is where I grew up. Uh, moved to Detroit. My parents, excuse me, I was three years old. My parents moved to Detroit from Huntsville, Alabama, where I was born. But Detroit is where my formative years were spent. I'm the oldest of five and, uh, and have two wonderful parents who are still with us who are celebrating their 66th wedding anniversary this year, and they still like each other, um, 66. And so we're real blessed by that. And, you know, candidly, my parents are two significant influencers uh, for me. My dad was an educator who was committed to helping and educating uh, young people at the high school level. My mother was a nurse who was committed and continued to be committed to service. But my mother actually went back to college after my, my youngest sister, the fifth child, was born. And I remember she graduated from college with her undergraduate degree in social work the same year my youngest sister graduated from high school. And so my parents have just been such a role model around consistency, commitment, service, and persistence. And they still continue to represent that uh, even to this day. But another significant influence, since you asked me the question, was uh, Roosevelt Wise. This is his name. He since passed on, but he was the principal of my middle, it was called junior high school back in those days. And I went to Charles Drew uh, Junior High in, in Michigan, in the Detroit, Michigan area. And Mr. Wise, asked me if I would consider working for his Dairy Royal, which is sort of like a Dairy Queen. It was a privately owned ice cream shop that he ran during the summer. I was 14 years old. And I, I, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, working, going to being driven to work by my parents and making my little first paycheck and, and just having the confidence bestowed upon me by the principal of the school. And then literally a year later, when I went to return for my junior year in high school, in my freshman year in high school, uh, I was 15. He promoted me to manager. And so I actually managed the Dairy Royal with people that worked there that were older than I, I was. And so that was life-changing to me because I never thought about it until then about what managing others may have been like. And I was literally wasn't even driving it when that happened. So I, so that was a significant influencing moment for me too. That is huge. And you know what I, I um, as I was doing yeah. a little bit more research, I, I read on that story and I thought, you know what, Michael and I have a lot in common, but I did not know we had something in common from a, starting our, our work, starting working at an early age. And so I had, I started working at 14 as well and was able because of the, the owners of the KFC franchise who said, Hey, Lakeisha, we're going to give you an opportunity, you know, much like Mr. Yeah. Y did because he saw something in you that you could lead at an early age. Right. And so I just love that story. Yeah. You know, when someone sees something before you even see it in yourself, that's the, that's, that's the ultimate, I think. I'm forever grateful for that, that moment. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I know, we could spend you know, a whole hour unpacking that because as a young person, right. um, managing and leading people who are much older than yeah. you. So you probably had to find a way to 
find their love language or find a way to win friends and influence people very quickly. Yeah, You're very so quickly. young. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you uh, you know, now that you mention it, you learn how to get things done through win-win discussion, mm. you know, as opposed to power. You know, I didn't have any uh, generational power. And so nudging and influencing and talking about the benefits to both was this normal that became sort of a second language to me because the only way to get someone who was in their thirties to, you know, to, to behave differently took a different skill set than you shall do this because I told you so. That just didn't work. That was not going to work. Okay. They would have bounced you right out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yeah. What a defining yeah. moment. But I want to I want to extend on that. So when you think back on your experiences mm-hmm. growing up, and to me, that is certainly a raw moment. Is there anything yeah. else that stands yeah. out for you as a defining moment that really helped you unleash your roar, discover your roar? Well, there, there are a couple of things that come to mind in direct response to it. And they, they sort of represent different stages of my my life's journey. I spent the summer between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college, working as a janitor in a high-rise business building downtown in Detroit. It was an urban league. Had, the urban league had helped me find that job, and I was making a lot of money, I guess, filling in for vacations as a person who mopped floors and emptied garbage mm-hmm. uh, in the offices in that building. But I was making so much money, Lakeisha. And I just remember uh, watching these older guys, because they were all in their probably 60s and 70s who worked there for 40, 50 years. Um, It was just a community, but I was making so much money. And I remember saying casually to one of the guys that I was assigned to, you know, I really think, I think I might take a year off and make money and then buy a car before I go to Michigan State, where I went to college. And he didn't say anything. I mean, he just basically shrugged, and we kept mopping. And and then the following day, when I arrived at work, it was probably 5.30, because I, I always worked the evening a shift. And I remember walking into the locker room, and all of the janitors, all of them were Black men mm-hmm. but all of the janitors on all three shifts were in the locker room and it was so weird i felt you know sort of intimidated by all this adultness right that was around me <laughs> and lonnie the guy that i talked to offline about my passion about buying a car said to them you know brother Hyder said he's thinking about taking a year off and all of them said you know you are not going to take a year off We've worked and we've swept floors. We've cleaned toilets so that someone like you can go on to college and make something of himself. And if you need money, we'll go, we'll raise money. Wow. But you will not work here full time. And I just, I will never forget it. Oh it's like it was one gosh. of those situations where I just felt loved on mm-hmm. by these, these guys. But I just remember the, the feeling of being thought of in such lofty ways as a youngster mm-hmm. but also a sense of obligation no matter how selfish and immature it was to be thinking about buying a car when i could be going to college <laughs> and, 
And it's just so funny, you know, because, they, you know, my parents, I would have expected my parents to have said that, mm-hmm. but I didn't expect, you know, 30 men that I didn't know. You know, so that was one that came to mind. Uh, another one real quickly was when I was in college uh, and I was graduating from Michigan State out of the College of Business. I was the president of Black Students of Business, which is an organization of black students kind of like a black student uh, ERG, uh-huh. you know, back in those days. And this was like the late 70s. And I was hosting company leaders to come and speak to the students about job opportunities for the seniors who were going to be looking for jobs, including me. I and mean, I just assumed that my being a part of this was going to increase the odds of me getting, you know, great jobs with different companies. And I was interested in HR, human resources, but I had all of these job offers, Mm -hmm. General Motors and Deloitte and IBM. They were all great companies with with, $30,000 salaries. And Harold Hall, I'm just going to name names. (laughs) Harold Hall was the director at Hudson's Department Stores in Detroit. And he was there and he met the students and he met me and we had lunch and then he talked to me about HR because that was my interest. And he arranged for me to meet with like 12 people at Hudson's downtown. And I ended up being given an offer as a trainee in human resources at Hudson's for 50% less than all of my other offers were. Wow. But I remember talking to him and he said, look, you know, this is your passion you should give it a try in two years if you don't like it, but this is what you should pursue your passion versus just chase the money. And I never looked back. I never, you know, I, I ended up going there and I ended up ultimately becoming an, an officer and, and then the rest of history. But it, it all started with that one adult again, saw something, but he sponsored me and he made that happen. And he was a black male older father figure mm-hmm. but i've just it's almost like i've been on the receiving end of adult angels mm-hmm. along my path that has made opportunities available for me which probably has a lot to do with why it's such a part of my ethic at my stage in my life too now that i think about it to give back very interesting so that was yeah that was a, yep. you, were a, you were in an interesting situation because here it is you've got multiple offers that are paying you much more mm-hmm. than much more department stores, right? Right. And you right. Hudson department stores yeah. to forego those opportunities, making less than your peer, right? Because of sponsorship and advocacy, and because of someone who you you trusted and you wanted to attach your brand to, and he told you he would show you the way. How? Was that a difficult decision or was it easy because of of the support you had in your angel? Well, I'd say it it was difficult to some degree because I've, you know, I've always been somewhat fixated on money. I mean, I was, I love the fact that I made a lot of money as a youngster with the Dairy Royal and as that janitor. And, and so I had ambitions of making a lot of money when I graduated from college and it didn't feel like that ambition was being met when I, if I said yes to to this company, but there was, but I guess he helped me see my passion was human resources. Mm -hmm. This was a human resources opportunity. 
And so I was willing to give it candidly, now that I can be honest, upfront about it, a year. I said, well, okay. I'm going to give it a year and see. And I ended up doing it. And there were bumps and bruises along the way. But I, I, I actually had a wonderful, fruitful career where I eventually became an officer for the company, which was for the first time someone black like me became an officer at their company. Like 12 or 13 years later, I was wow. a VP. And I just... And and was doing really well financially, right. even in an in an even in an industry that was not perceived as very financially oriented in the beginning, which is true. So, so I just you know the message in there is follow your passion. A lot of times the the money will follow if your passion is the lead more than the other way around. Love it. That's lesson number one. I I received that. Yeah. Yeah. A very powerful yeah. one. So let's talk a little bit about just your career progression, even from that, right? I mean, you've had, mm-hmm. I mean, just your, that story in of itself created a platform for you to become the first African-American officer for custom department stores. You leveraged that and moved on. I know you, you owned your own company, Global Innovations, you, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. became senior partner and managing director. And now the chief diversity and inclusion officer for the company. So I know you were yeah. about to head off into the sunset. I mean, just from a phenomenal career. And they said, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> you must stay. You yeah. cannot go. This is a, yeah. you know, just a critical inflection point and all the work that Corn Ferry has been driving around DNI, which you were a part of, the Black PL study. Yeah. You decided to stay. What mm-hmm. motivates you to stay in the game? Why did you say yes to this opportunity? The truth is, is that it was, and not to get, you know, too mushy, but it really was the, sort of the opportunity to serve my professional ministry in a way to make a difference with an organization that had a global brand that I was intimately familiar with and have friends and colleagues around the globe that I've worked with over the years that allowed me the opportunity at this moment in time in our journey around race relations Mm. and business applications to it. It was just, it was just an opportunity to bloom where I was planted, Uh you know, as opposed to just taking three months off and, and pursuing, you know, other things on the other side, once I had a chance to get some rest. There was a real strong sense that my voice within the organization was still something that people wanted to continue to be. I had been pretty much an an obvious and uh, strong advocate for this work uh, within the organization, even in my role. So it was, it was almost like the formality of a role and the fact that it was reporting directly to the CEO who I appreciate, respect and trust directly. So I'm a member of the operating committee that manages the company at large. So there isn't any in between, go between, you know, so it was just, it was just just a huge moment and a huge opportunity that my wife and I made the decision that it made more sense to stay and, and enjoy this and to have a chance to help enhance what's already successful to another level, especially in the face of the pandemic and some of the other uh, challenges that we're facing. As, as in industry. So, uh, and being asked to be on a board of, I was assi- given an opportunity to be to serve on a publicly traded board that was four weeks after I said yes to this role, 
Wow. With Dime Brand specifically, they're the company that owns Applebee's and IHOP. Mm-hmm. So Applebee's and IHOP folks. And, and and for my current employer to be comfortable with me taking on um, that role, uh, uh, being able to do that and still be an active executive at the same time was an added blessing. So I'm I'm good. I'm in a really good space. But the reason to stay was because of the opportunity to really make a measurable difference. I love it. I love that it. That was why. And yeah. I love what you yeah. said is seeing it as a personal passion, a ministry moment, opportunity mm-hmm. to, to drive mm-hmm. even more impact for people yeah. in general, but also for communities that you absolutely care about and want to mm-hmm. see them grow and thrive. So I love that. So it really right. sounds like it's a great right. spot for you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Feeling that way so far. So far, so good. I love it. I love it. So tell me, tell, talk to us a little bit about you know, as a leader, it can, su- I mean, you've been successful, right? And I, and I know you've had some challenges along the way. And sometimes, you know, we look at people on the outside and we say, well, gosh, I can never be Michael. I mean, he's so super successful. I'm sure he's never faced any challenges in his career at all, right? And so mm-hmm. I love for you to talk about if ever as a leader, you know, you've had to face some challenges. You know, did mm-hmm. you ever have someone in your career that, you know, did see, uh, this amazing leader that you were and may have said, I don't think you can handle that, Michael. And if so, mm-hmm. how should we as leaders, you know, who are in the corporate environment, because, you know, we run across people who say, well, you know, I don't think Lakeisha can do that. I don't think John can do that. Right. And many times it, right. it can really feel like an attack on your confidence, your skills, your talents. Mm-hmm. How might we overcome that? I and mean, have you ever had a, have you ever experienced anything like that? Well, unfortunately, the answer is often, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think, you know, now that you asked that question, it is interesting to, to actually process it in, in present tense and to speak to the fact that it's been a number of times throughout the, in the, the life cycle of my career where I've been on the receiving end of what I would call low expectations or no expectations. 50% of the time, it wasn't clearly articulated overtly. It was just their behavior would suggest they had low expectations because they did very little to position me when I was given an opportunity or very little feedback when asked, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I do recall, just to put context around this, that there was one time in particular where I was a young manager with aspirations to becoming a director level. This is what the Dayton Hudson with Hudson Department of Service still. I was a young manager, and I remember working for a manager at the time who was the head of HR who acknowledged that there was a director opening that reported to him. I was given the task to assist them in finding that replacement. And I remember him saying and uh, casually to me, and, you know, you are a good guy, Mike, but you don't have the intellectual capability or you aren't bright enough to operate at this level. And so this is not a role that I would consider you for, but I want you to help me find a candidate for this job. And I remember how painful being on the receiving end of that was. Mm -hmm. And it really did impact my confidence. I mean, he killed my confidence Mm -hmm. actually. I mean, I just remember thinking, and I and I started second guessing decisions, and I was reluctant to contribute in meetings. And 
And so there was a lot of behaviors that probably only reinforced that belief by him mm-hmm. because I had become smaller uh, as opposed to larger, you know, in the face of knowing that that's how he felt about me. And I was uber sensitive about my words and whether I was pronouncing things correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was just off balance. He was terminated. Wow. And it hadn't, and it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with me. It was just something that happened. I don't know what happened between him and the CEO, but he was replaced by another person, a woman who was moved into the the head of HR role from a financial role from at the corporate office. And so she didn't have HR experience, but she was an executive. And I remember our first meeting when she said, you know, I don't know you, but there's no reason to believe that you don't have the capacity to grow. I really want to grow with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to manage you uh, in, in ways of helping you meet your goals and objectives. And she never asked what they were, but she, she treated me like I had a brain mm-hmm. and she would ask questions and she positioned me for assignments and I'd be, and I'd participate in meetings and she'd give me, you know, constructive feedback about, I wasn't speaking up enough or when I spoke up, I wasn't clear with the summary first versus before going into detail. But it was all done with care and concern. Like you felt like uh, she was pouring into me developmentally uh-huh. while also managing me, you know, as opposed to that I was this dumb kid who was an unsophisticated Detroit kid who was just happy, should be happy to have a job, which is how I felt before. And I'll never forget the day she promoted me. Because, wow. like, I remember I became a director on her watch, but I had earned it through her tutoring Mm -hmm. and her standards expectations and how she managed it. And she was a confidence booster, you know, and it was the first time I could actually see confidence is something that can be built as opposed to something you naturally have. Mm -hmm. It can be easily destroyed too. And so I always, I always tell uh, other people that I'm speaking or coaching with, you know, you know, confidence is fragile. Don't let anyone kill your confidence. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, don't be a confidence killer when you lead other people. Love it. So that's also important too. So she was a true success partner, essentially, right? She was. Yeah, she, she was, was a manager, but she was she a was. complete partner and wanted your success right. just as much as you did. And that's that's nirvana, right? right? It really is. And she, And she wasn't my friend. You know, so it was really important the distinction. You know, it wasn't a personal relationship. It was just how she managed. Love it. She just assumed people could until they demonstrated they couldn't versus the other way around. And so that's just important for us as managers to treat other people that way as well. Totally agree. Totally agree. You know, you, as I said before, you've worked with a lot of different people. And so many times for us starting in our careers or mid-level or even senior level, Mm -hmm. you have to manage from Mm -hmm. a 360 degrees perspective, right? To to really Mm -hmm. achieve the outcomes that you want. And that can be daunting right? because you're navigating new people. You're trying to influence at the right level. And it feels like there's so many factors that are beyond our control. What advice do you have that you can share with us to help manage what seems like to be so many variables to success, to actually navigating progression and the, and the ladder? Well, 
That's that's a great question. I think a few things that come to mind. If I and you know, of course, the world is never this linear, this prescriptive. But you know, in direct response to to the question, understanding that there is a fundamental difference between technical skills, relational skills, and influence skills, and often people spend too much energy fixated on technical skills as the only thing that matters. How many degrees we have, how long you've been in the job, how knowledgeable you are about the job. And I just think what's really been telling is for people who've gone, grown to understand and appreciate having the strategic relationship building skills, even with people that don't like you and having the ability to influence others as demonstrated are two things that fundamentally make us they make a significant difference in your value to your organization and increases the probability of advancement because advancement is dependent on all three of those things not just technical and so that's one thing i just i keep referencing because we always will tell children or tell our young people get good grades work harder than everyone else as opposed to, you know, get very good grades, but make sure that you have strategic relationships with people in authority so that they know who you are and that you've demonstrated to those people that you have the ability to get things done to others. We don't spend as much energy working on that muscle. And so I just think that those three things are things that are, that is a lesson learned relative to how one can sort of influence their ability to be successful more than they think they can if they demonstrate the proficiency in those three areas. The other thing, Lakeisha, is biases exist. You know, micro uh, microaggressions, biases, okay. prejudices, however you want to define it. Those things exist. They won't necessarily be completely 100% eliminated. And sometimes managers are the luck of the draw, you know, sometimes you don't get to pick them. <laughs> you just assign. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's our actions. Right. That we take to achieve the outcomes we want. That matters more than whether racism or biases are in front of us. And it's easier said mm-hmm. than done, I think, but it's just really important, you know, not to get so distracted because I've seen so often particularly with with people of color Mm -hmm. in particular, that if someone is demonstrating negative energy towards us, they don't like us. And therefore, if they don't like us, I don't want to be around them or I don't want to give 100% to them as opposed to do they or don't they represent an asset towards helping me get to the other side of where I want to be? And how can I demonstrate my value in action versus get debilitated by someone's energy that doesn't have anything to do with my my work? Uh, the, the two other things real quick is be outcomes oriented. Be outcomes oriented. Please. What matters is doing something measurable, not just doing something. Uh-huh. And so I want people right. to just be more deliberate around the fact that what have you done to add value to the organization through your actions that is measurable today is the question you ask, as opposed to how tired I am uh-huh. about how hard I'm working for someone else. 
you know, just, it's just a different mm-hmm. mindset. And then the last thing is, is, is like this, these, all these observations of how, what I've seen is seek challenging assignments on be intentional about it. Don't mm-hmm. necessarily wait for someone to discover you, but be willing to take risk by seeking, you know, new wow. opportunities as they come up, or if there's this, if there's a significant assignment and you hear about it, let people know that you're interested, but this, but, but there's a little bit of respect that comes with someone who is willing to take a risk than someone who's always playing it safe and then, but expected to be promoted. You know, it just, and so those, those are the four things that immediately come to mind as pearls that I would hope I could just sort of translate into the spirit mm-hmm. of every person without it having to be something that they have to read. Those are the things that come to mind to me. Does that help? I love it. Good. Good. Awesome. Awesome. Super helpful. Super helpful. And I think, you know, probably you, I'm sure you, you've uh, articulated some mm-hmm. of these pearls mm-hmm. of, of wisdom in your book, The Power of Choice. Yeah. Embracing efficacy to drive your career. And, you know, efficacy has several different meetings. I'd love for you to maybe unpack a couple of things from your book, but, you know, how would you describe efficacy or how should we be looking at it at this point in time, given the, the corporate landscape and some of the, the challenge, the new challenges that we're having to navigate? Right. Well, well, efficacy is one of those complicated words that without definition, it doesn't make any sense, which I'm glad that you give me the opportunity to answer it. And, and answer it. And efficacy is a word that's often used in the pharmaceutical space when they're thinking about the the effectiveness of a particular drug. And so we've just took upon ourselves when we're thinking about how to encourage people to be more intentional about driving their career themselves. Efficacy is defined as the capacity to produce a desired outcome. It's in essence, it's basically a high belief impact system thinking where my career outcomes are a byproduct of the things and efforts and, that I do as opposed to the byproduct of luck or the byproduct uh-huh. of being picked by someone who uh-huh. just hasn't picked me yet. So uh-huh. the capacity to produce an outcome, as simplistic as that sounds, is not as universal a mindset belief as, as it should be for people, particularly people if they're underrepresented in an environment because you're just so overwhelmed with the negatives about the environment. But I wake up every day now, at, and, and I say this is efficacious, where I have a real clear sense that the organization at large will benefit from what I have to offer it, you know, as opposed to, I hope it works out, maybe it will happen, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what efficacy means, right? Right. Efficacy means that. And I think just getting back to the current environment that you referenced, there is this COVID-19 economic impact dynamic that has influenced the environment we happen to be in, where there's a lot of situations where organizations are either right-sizing or, or changing or confronting how they redefine themselves. And so there are people who I think are more in a position to help an organization during its reimagining process than they realize Mm -hmm. 
that could conceivably add significant value to, an, to the organization they work for at any level if they think of their responsibilities that way versus just as a paycheck and they're hoping everything will work out. I also think efficacy would benefit even if you lost your job, you know, just to have the confidence that you can put forth the effort to find another one if you're willing to do what you need to do in terms of moving or changing careers. Or so it's just a it's a possibilities of being able to shape outcomes thinking as opposed to absolutely hoping that it works out thinking. Love it. So I mean, what I hear you say is career development, career progression is not a matter of luck. It's really about the proper strategy and mindset. I think is what I hear you right. say. And it's, it's primarily, I'd say 90% of his effort, strategic effort. Mm-hmm. Luck, sometimes luck falls into, you know, where, you know, I lucked up when I met Harold Hall. I mean, or when mm-hmm. that manager that I referenced to sort of restored me back to health was not someone that I saw coming. You know, it was, you know, she was just placed in the role. And so, but I think effort strategically puts you in a position where you can maximize and take full advantage of moments that weren't planned more than what oftentimes I've seen. There are people literally sitting at their desk, frustrated, waiting to be discovered. Yes. And frustrated that they aren't. And there are... If, if there isn't one message, if, if there's only one message that I'm trying to convey in our conversation is for people who are out there who are listening through the sound of your voice or mm-hmm. mine, not to fall into that trap of assuming that it's all going to be done by someone else. So true. So true. I mean, it's almost like at, you know, middle school or high school or, or elementary school, just waiting for someone to come pick you to dance. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so that's an uncomfortable feeling. Right. Hey, I hear what you're saying. Right. Not that, you know, and many, many have faced that. But what we're saying is it's knowing that we're ready to dance and really walking out in that confidence, right. whether someone's dancing right. or not. Right. right. I'm ready to be discovered. I'm not waiting in the corner for you to come by. I'm making myself visible. I'm delivering impact. And so you're like, I like her. I like him. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yep. I love you got it. it. Well, a couple of things. You've heard some phenomenal lessons thus far. And I know just a short time ago, you were one of the key leaders at Corn Ferry that kind of commissioned and did a study mm-hmm. just on Black PL leadership. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you guys came up with some really key insights and lessons as you interview several leaders who, you know, have achieved at the highest levels in terms of being PL leaders in corporate America and many in the C suite. I'd love for you to maybe just share a few lessons. I mean, I'm sure they're all universal that we can learn from in terms of how do we need to show up? How do we need to operate in those environments to even get into a position to have a P&L role to drive impact with the company? Anything you want to share there? Yeah, thank you. I think that to be willing to seek new, ch- new challenges, as I've referenced earlier, not to be discouraged because of low expectations of other people, mm-hmm. be you know have a clear picture of what you're working towards. You don't. It doesn't have to be an absolute certainty, but have some sense of you know is there an opportunity that of interest to you, or is there a level that's of interest to you, 
and then put together a what do you need to demonstrate and to deliver that would increase the odds of the organization seeing you operate at that mm. level. Because oftentimes the lack of vision causes us to be dependent on other people's other other folks' vision. Mm-hmm. And when you have clarity about what you're working towards, then the other piece that's also another takeaway was that there's a difference between working hard and working effectively. You know, effective effort is your your outcomes are becoming more of a reality. Your in- interests are becoming more of a reality as a result of your as a result of your decisions and choices, as mm-hmm. opposed to you're working around in circles and you're working eighty hours a week and you don't see any. Mm-hmm. There is there's very little advancement to show for it. And so you get, I've asked people all the time, what are you working towards? I don't know. I just want a promotion. A promotion to what? I'm not sure. I just want to make more money. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, then how do you know you're effectively moving that direction if it isn't if you don't have something that provides mm-hmm. some degree of clarity, even if and you reserve the right to change your mind. I mean it's always so I just I would say that another takeaway was that those things came up often as as skills the executives we interviewed all equally demonstrated and they were mm-hmm. relentless in their pursuit to growing and developing in a certain direction mm-hmm. and then willing to make the the sacrifices towards making that happen but they were also willing to be strategic and building relationships with people in authority that were even outside of their mm-hmm their focus area, you know, I don't know that I don't know the CFO. Yeah, but right. he may like you if he got if he if he had a chance to get to know you. He's too far up in the organization. Well, not necessarily. I mean, so I just think that for us to be comfortable with working outside of the bubble of what our comfort zone is, mm-hmm. to be comfortable with developing what I call strategic relationships with other people. One last thing, Lakeisha, that I think about, it, especially for, for women, but this is true for a lot of people, but acute for women, is to be comfortable promoting your contributions to people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to be a braggart. It doesn't mean you have to create a, right. a, 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 you have to dominate meetings about how awesome you are, but it's also okay <laughs> to acknowledge you met or exceeded a significant milestone. Mm-hmm. You're happy about that. You want people to know about it it's because there's a lot of times mm-hmm. people will be frustrated with somebody's getting more attention than me. Well, that person's probably being more deliberate about wanting people that are higher up to know what they bring to offer versus I'm waiting for them to find me. You know, it's like it's a and ask the question. They have the question, mm-hmm. right? So uh, those are things that I just think were really telling. And you know, and to your point though, the, the the notion behind the even reason why we even did this study is because there were there were fewer black CEOs in Fortune 500 mm-hmm. companies, and of the three that are the black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, two of which are retirement age now. So you know, so you can just, you can just sort of do the math. And I was actually rather surprised at how few 
black executives mm-hmm. who manage profit and loss responsibility were in the pipeline, which is where primarily CEOs come from. And that there was a significant number of black people in C-suite roles that were support roles mm-hmm. and are support and they're important. But profit mm-hmm. and loss where the where the responsibility for the profitability of a multi-billion dollar organization mm-hmm. seemed to be less available. And I wanted to understand why, but we decided to spend time with black executives who had PO responsibility about what was common about their backgrounds, the experiences, their, the headwinds they encountered in their careers and their takeaways. Mm-hmm. And we matched that against our corn fairy standard about what successful CEOs look like to see if there was Absolutely. any doubts. And it gave us a picture that all of those people exceeded that CEO standard. Wow. They did have some unique nuances where there were headwinds that they confronted that Mm -hmm. were race-related or culture-related, but they chose not to be defeated by it. And they were very more, they were very aggressive about. So there was this, it it was a way of learning that, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of the decisions that people made when they are operating at that level. But more importantly, it was important to me and my team for us to demonstrate to the CEOs of Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies that black people and profit and loss capability is not an anomaly. It is not something that mm-hmm. should be considered an exception, but they were people who were groomed and developed to be that. And that's the answer that organizations need to be more deliberate about. And this was before the George Floyd situation took this to the next level in terms of conversation and energy. So and a lot of the observations around what other people can do to be more successful in their careers was influenced by this, by this research, independent of what level you happen to be in your company. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. Super important. I mean, I read the report and we, we shared it across, you know, my former company mm-hmm. and I'm sure it's circulating where I am today. I think it's super important. I know you guys have, you know, Corn Ferry works with Really, I would assume every Fortune 500 company that's on the list. And so I'm excited yeah. to know that we're, we're doing all right. The, the senior leadership. Yeah. Yeah. That they're, they're excited to consume this knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, to your point, is there's tons of African American leaders who have the capability. And you spoke about the pipeline and the importance of, you know, putting folks in the pipeline to give them the opportunities for that yes. PL role. Right. That's the key. Right. That's the key. And I'm hoping your study helps them see that the talent is sitting in the organization waiting to be developed. And there's even more talent in the ecosystem that they can pull from. So thank you guys for doing that sure, work. Absolutely. You've been in the industry for so long. And I keep referencing that because we're just grateful for the fact that you're still here mm-hmm. and that you're sharing your knowledge with all of us. I mean, ELC has pulled you in, you know, throughout the last you know several decades to share and to impart upon not just the leaders in the pipeline, but even the C-suite executives that have been participating in ELC. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you, you know, as a leader who's enjoyed a phenomenal career, what legacy that you want to leave, mm-hmm. but also for aspiring leaders in corporate America and the companies themselves? I mean, this is really your life's work. Yeah. And you know, you're in this capacity now because you really want to make sure that before you truly sell off into the sunset, maybe sit in a beach chair <laughs> on a beach somewhere that you left us in good hands. So talk a little bit about that. 
Well, Lakeisha, my hopes are that developing talent of color becomes a normal, creative and critical way of doing business as opposed to it's mm-hmm. perceived as an exception. And that's mm-hmm. a hope. I mean, I just think that there's so much talent that has so much to offer, but the playing field of opportunities being presented where you almost have to be at the level before people will trust that you can handle it when with other people, they can be promoted on the assumption that they will figure it out. There needs mm-hmm. to be a lot more of a narrowing of the gap between those two pictures. And so that's my hope is that this becomes mm-hmm. standard as opposed to an exception. My fear, I don't dwell on fears, but my fear is that, that organizations don't see this purely as a optics or ceremonial thing that the development of an advancement of talent is an intentional outcomes play, you know, where you're intentionally wanting to create outcomes and and building structures that reinforce that so that it naturally becomes part of how talent is processed. But my fear is that in this moment where there's so much attention that there are organizations who may see, let me just place a person in the chief diversity job and hope it works out. Or let me just place a person Mm -hmm. in a role that has X, Y, Z visibility without any budget or resources or support for that particular role. So that's a fear. In terms of legacy, the legacy is, and it's a a prayer, the legacy is is that, that there are, that all of us, independent of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, but any of us who are leaders are Mm -hmm. to those that we work, that work for us, what those janitors were for me or what that Mm -hmm. manager who saw me as having potential was for, to me, be that to someone else, you know, and be, and, and the more you can be that way to someone who is different than you are, that's where the Mm -hmm. yield is. Because it's easier to do that with someone I'm comfortable with. What a legacy that would be, you know, relative to that being the full embodiment of every person, independent of what makes them different, fully getting taken advantage and being in leadership roles where they can influence the direction of an organization versus merely just working there. That's what I get up for every morning. So does that, I mean, those are the three things that immediately come to mind since you asked. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah, that uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to pray with you on that and believe that that is that is the world that we're moving towards. Right. With folks like you in these organizations and, and really spending time with the C-suite, I'm hopeful that it will happen as well. So let me ask, is there yeah. anything else that you want to share with the audience before I do a quick round of questions that I haven't uh, told you about? This can be fun. Okay, no, let's, <laughs> let's go straight to the fun part. I'm good. Yeah. OK, let's do it. So I'm just going to wrap up with uh, a few questions that I'll say a phrase or a word, and you'll tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Your favorite food. My favorite food? Sushi. Oh, okay. Guilty pleasure. Oh, wow. What's your guilty pleasure? Homemade vanilla ice cream. Homemade. I love the homemade part. Right, that one. (laughs) Whoa. Old school. Okay. 
Maybe your favorite book or a book you're reading right now. Oh, wow. So my, one book I'm reading right now is, um, oh, is Brene Brown's uh, Daring. Oh, oh, is it Daring Greatly? Yeah, Daring Greatly right now is one yes. that I'm finding. It's just, it's just, it's just really interesting to hear just her sort of her take on daring high expectations and acting on them and but 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 being vulnerable as the secret the superpower in that quest mm-hmm. but you know but i also read the, this book called the power of choice regularly i would highly recommend that one too <laughs> i agree <laughs> and i know you're you're coming out with a new updated edition here soon yeah, so look December. forward to that yeah Good. I don't expect that you have a lot of time to watch TV, but if you do, do you have a Netflix addiction? Well, we, uh, I'm trying to think, well, I'm going to say we watched Schitt's Creek. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't seen that one That's S-C-H-I-T-T-S. We watched that. Mm -hmm. We watched every, we watched every show. Mm -hmm. We also watched Mrs. Maisel, the... Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, so the crown. So this is interesting because we go into these these journeys of things we normally wouldn't have watched that found that we found them to be yeah. be fun and to be interesting and different. I'd say yeah. one 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 indulging television series is uh, Ninety Day Fiance. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's I have. It's insane <laughs> and it's addictive, and I cannot believe I sit and watch that show. Uh, when we do, because I'm, I get frustrated by the people, the decisions that they make. But you know, those are right. those are things that we tend to watch on Netflix. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, what's your dream vacation? If we get a chance to to get out of this COVID nineteen situation, is there a place that you and your wife have on the list? Barcelona, Spain. That's on the list. Oh yeah. So mine as well. Love it. Love it. Well, hey, listen, we, I want to make sure the audience has an opportunity to stay connected to you. So should we look out to, to connect with you on LinkedIn? You got a couple books coming out. Maybe tell us where we can go find you. Well, LinkedIn is the best way to stay connected. And it's also the place where you get updated information relative to publications in the book. Both the power of inclusion and the power of choice uh, is the power of choice is the one that I referenced that's going to be renewed and, and published reintroduced uh, newly published in december they're both available through amazon.com so um and i'd be more than happy so thank you for your support in advance for those of you that are, that are so inclined it's been my pleasure too love it well awesome well it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you i look forward to catching up thank you thank as you well thank you great. so much for your time talk to you later and i'm proud of you too by the way i'm proud of you thank you Thank you so much, Michael. It means a lot. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time. 